He's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. COVID did not finish me off. That's right, I'm back. While I was sick, I spent a lot of time expectorating. It was gross, and so naturally my thoughts turned to a youth misspent browsing shock sites and attempting to trick friends into seeing the horrifying images that I was seeing. That's right, today we're going to talk about Goatsy, Steak and Cheese, Ogrish, Two Girls, One Cup, Lemon Party, all that great stuff. Well, great. Today we're going to explain the colorful history of how shock sites shaped the internet. With me here today to do that is Blake Hester. Hester is a senior associate editor at Game Informer and also the author of a new feature at Motherboard all about these shock sites. Blake, thank you for coming on to Cyber today and talking about this with us. Thank you for having me. I I hate to expose myself within the first minutes, but I'm not familiar with steak and cheese. Oh, really? Yeah, which is kind of the issue with writing a piece about shock size. It's like a never-ending black hole. Yeah, there's so many of them. But what is steak and cheese? So steak and cheese was kind of, uh, it was around the same time as, Mm -hmm. it was one of the very, very early ones. Uh, I'm trying to think of like, what was the the thing that predated Ogrish? You talk about it on there. In your, in your Ogrish p- is the first one that is it, became lively. Okay, yeah. became lively. Well, there was one before. Anyway, it was one of the very early ones. It was similar okay. to all of these other sites. It was a place you could go and see uh, like horrifying images, crime scene photos, that kind of thing. Oh, like Best Gore, Ogrish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was okay. one of those kinds of things. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, one of those things I was see- I was like browsing to in middle school and probably should not have been on. Sure. Bringing it up on the computer lab at, at middle school before they knew like how to, how to make, 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 make it so kids couldn't see that stuff. Um, so, okay. Well, what is your, I, I was curious reading this, like what is your personal history with shock sites? What, what is, what drives a person to write about this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I'm only 28. So I think shock sites have just existed my entire life. I've never known a world without the shock site. Um, and in general, like I had an early fascination with horror and just always knowing how far something can go. So with horror, it quickly beyond it was like, what's the scariest movie ever made? What's the goriest movie ever made? You know, like and. Somewhere in that line, you know, like two girls, one cup hit and people in middle school and high school, they started talking about these websites with these like unfathomably gross things. And like as someone already interested in that stuff, I gravitated towards it, just like wanting to know because they all have like fairly innocuous names, like two girls, one cup doesn't sound gross on the surface. And then it's explained to you and you're like. I didn't know humans did that to each other. (laughs) But the weird thing about me is like, I have an incredibly weak stomach when it comes to real stuff. When it's fake, it doesn't matter. But when it's real, I can't handle it. So my big relation with shock sites, I've seen like, you know, the classics, two girls, one cup, BME, tub girl and all that. But like a lot of my time in high school is just spent having friends describe them to me because I couldn't stomach looking at them. But I like was endlessly fascinated learning about like, Oh, this is this is what's actually going on out there. Not like, you know, not a common everyday practice, but it was fascinating to me to learn like there are subcultures and weird pockets of the internet where some things you would not expect exist and 
now a decade, 15 years later, I'm still seeking it out. It's funny you make that connection between uh, like the horror genre in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I was also really big into this when I was younger. Um, I also have kind of a weak stomach. I can't, I can't watch tub girl. I can't watch two yeah. girls, one cup. It sends me, it's bad. Um, and it's like, I can handle blood mm-hmm. and guts and that kind of thing, but it's the other bodily fluids where I start to, I start to lose it. Um, it's same. Like I, because this job and this article is weird. I had to fact check the upload date on tub girl oh, no. <laughs> on ryan.com. And it was like genuinely, I had to like steal myself. It took me like five minutes of like mentally preparing myself to see that image for the first time. And like, I don't know, 15, 16 years. And what was weird about it is somehow my brain made it better than it actually is. It was actually way worse than I remembered, (laughs) which was a bit surprising. I was like, there was part of me that was like, I'm going to see it and it's not going to be as bad as I remember. And it was like, I would say 10 times worse than I recalled. Your brain had saying it had protected you a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, Shut some of it down. I eroded the safety barrier I had given myself (laughs) over the last 15 years. Um, I was, I was super fascinated kind of at the beginning of this story to see the movie cannibal Holocaust mentioned. Mm. Uh, what is the connection here? And have you seen cannibal Holocaust? I have uh, a funny story about me and cannibal Holocaust is like, it was obviously like when you first start Googling, like what are the scariest or bloodiest movies ever made? Like two immediately pop up. One is Guinea pig two and the other is cannibal Holocaust. Um, Cannibal Holocaust at that point in time, like probably 2008, 2009 for me, was the easiest to get on DVD. And a friend of mine bought it for me for my birthday. And I remember my mom watching it with us. And she, as soon as the credits rolled, she took it. Yeah, she took it and said, you can't have this back till you're 18. And the day I turned 18, I went and got it back from her. Um, And I have it over there. I had to use that DVD for a lot of research on this article. But um, the reason I started with it, to answer your question, is um, like there was a few different places this whole article could have begun. Like one is just going back thousands of years in time and like, you know, blood sports existed. And like, we've had this long history of like public executions and even the running footage. There's like a weird history of like running pictures of executions on front pages of newspapers, but to one cut down on word count and be also like finding the media focal point was to start with movies and around this Late 60s with like Mondo Kane and a few others, and definitely by the 70s and 80s, by you know, like the Italian cannibal genres coming out, Japanese splatters coming out, um, Mondo films are having their own thing with like Faces of Death, etc. Like, I, that seemed like the point that made the most sense to me is like, here is extreme media catching on in a big way, um, and like that felt the best place to tie it straight to the internet it was like okay you know shock sites didn't exist in a vacuum there's a history of like people going to see cannibal holocaust in movie theaters and it actually making like the equivalent of several millions of dollars at the box office it's kind of fascinating because it's the point at which uh i think i think cannibal holocaust is a good point at which the reality of this stuff 
begins to be eclipsed by the fantasy version because I'm thinking about mm. pre cannibal Holocaust, like people love to consume extreme content and always have, as you said, there's, mm-hmm. there was always blood sport, you know, famously Romans and gladiators. Uh, we'd like to, they like to watch people cut each other up. Um, I think about things like uh, Victorians and Edwardians collecting death photography um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> people attending public executions, uh, and being caught up in this kind of stuff and like taking trophies from the deceased. Uh, but at the, the, the cannibal Holocaust and the, these, as films get more and more popular and also at the same time become more pop art, I guess, and our ability to do practical effects that look real uh, becomes prevalent. You start getting things like cannibal Holocaust and for people that don't know what it is like very briefly, it's uh, I would say it's like the precursor to the Blair witch project. It's the original found footage movie. It's about a group of filmmakers who get lost in the Amazon and do a bunch of horrible things, die and then their footage is found. Um, And you are ostensibly in the fiction of the movie watching um, the, the footage of these, of these people who had, who like encountered, uh, Amazonian tribes and were killed. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's weird. Cause on the surface you think it's like, it's one of those movies where it's like, by the end you're like, Oh, who was the bad guy after all? And right. it was like the white people who went to South America and terrorized indigenous people. Um, it definitely, it's one of those weird things where it's like, you can look at it two ways. Either a is like, a completely artless, just disgusting film or be like this groundbreaking piece of filmmaking, which is what I see it as like, you know, as this like kind of weird political stance that the director took about anti-journalists, but also like a groundbreaking piece of like, here's, here's how we can do found footage. And here's how we can tell like parallel stories and also trick a bunch of people into thinking we actually killed uh, a bunch of real humans, which uh, did happen with this. Ruggiero Diodato did have to uh, stand trial for the murder of like five, four or five people. Right. Because they had done kind of a, uh, a campaign where the actors had to sign clauses where they wouldn't appear in other mm-hmm. media for a year. People thought they had vanished and were actually dead. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I, there's such a weird thing about this because th- a lot of those were like non-actors. And you have to think they were probably trying to make a name for themselves appearing in a film. Why they would sign a contract that says they have to disappear for a year at the genesis of what could have been their acting career is really uh, some mental gymnastics I do not understand. But and it's, it, it worked too well, though, because mm-hmm. like they did have to like fly them in and prove in like a court in Milan. Like they're they're alive. We didn't kill them. It's I mean, it's kind of a testament to the film because it does, it still hits. It does. Yeah, it really I does. It a, I watched it a couple of years ago for the first time, probably since my mom took it from me and <laughs> as a teenager and was like shocked by one, how much the violence does hold up, but two, like how good of a movie it is. I think that's often like, and it, it does it, like, again, it has some weird political slants in it, but like as just a like raw movie, like it is a very well-made artifact from that time, which a lot of those films just are not just are bad. Yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> yeah. like Jalo adjacent things that are just not hmm. great. Yeah. Um, so I, I saw this, uh, as it was banned in the United, it was one of these like rare movies that got banned in the United States. It was banned mm-hmm. in the United States for a long time. And then there was a, 
they did like the the remaster and re-release in 2005 2006 something like that yeah um and there was uh in texas at my local one of my indie theaters they showed it um and i had a friend who knew about it and was like we gotta go see this like i grabbed my wife and we went and saw the movie uh, with some friends and it was like a typical uh, night, you know, midnight movie crowd. Um, and before the movie starts, a guy comes out on stage and he's like, look, these are the things that are going to happen in this movie. And we just want everyone to know, like, you know, normally we're showing Rocky horror picture show, right. And everyone's going to yeah. have a good time. You're not going to feel good watching this film. Um, and you know, everyone's a little drunk and they're yelling and throwing popcorn and having a good time. And that kind of, that mood kind of persists through the first half of the movie. Um, and then by the, the, like the back half, the theater is dead silent and no one is saying anything. Uh, and when we were leaving, there were a couple of rows where people had started to vomit and had cleared out portions of the theater. No, uh, like, like that story you always hear from mm-hmm. like cats or whatever, when a gory movie shows up, that's crazy. It was yeah, it, like, I've never been in a movie theater where something like that has happened. Because that's how wild this this film is. Um, That's that's amazing. Yeah, and the my wife uh, never went to another midnight movie with me ever again. (laughs) You know, just yesterday, um, and it was one of those weird timing things where it's like if the story would have come out three days later, I would have included this. I saw that in Japan they're doing like a big four K screening in theaters of Cannibal Holocaust, like like next week or something. So like it still gets around. It's still popular around the world and still getting like theater showings and theater tours every time that, you know, remaster it. So that's wild to me that this thing still persists. Again, I just speaks mm-hmm. to the power of it. Yeah, um, for sure. It's still shocking all these years later. <laughs> it really is, which like is a testament. It's it, it when you watch it and it's still shocking in 2023, like putting your brain back in 81, I believe when it came out, it's like, yeah. well, yeah, I probably would have been horrified too. Like I also probably would have thought they died. Yeah. There's a reason they got brought in on murder charges. It makes sense. For sure. For sure. All right. So how does this lead into then rotten.com? Well, I mean, like I think I, it's hard to say, like, you know, Cannibal Holocaust is point A, Rotten is point B, rather they're just two sides of the same coin. People love seeing gross, taboo things. But Rotten, if it's not the genesis of shock sites, like, it stands to reason there was probably gross stuff on the internet before Rotten. Rotten was where it all collected. And it was also where this stuff was first mainstream. So Rotten was, as the creator who went under the pseudonym Soylent told it, a site started like I think they were just buying early domain names, you know, like rotten pets and stuff like that. Dot com. Um, it was like a joke site. And I guess he because it was called rotten, maybe he had just uploaded some. Gro- it's a little unclear, but there were gross pictures uploaded to his joke site. And that caught on in a few key ways. One was Howard Stern somehow had heard of this thing and talked about it on his show. And in 1997, which, you know showing up on the Howard Stern show in 97 or at any point in history, but definitely then like that's a huge, huge audience for a site like this to all of a sudden be in front of. And rotten had said on their, uh, their FAQ at the time or their press, their press page, they had like it sent their, it sent their traffic from like 4,500 hits a day to like over 50,000 in the late nineties. And 
Then they uploaded alleged photos of Princess Diana's corpse after the car wreck that took her life. Um, and that was another point where it's like so much traffic was hitting the shock site that it just became the first kind of go to place to see gross things on the internet in mass. You know, when we talk about a lot of other shock sites, they exist for one picture or one video, but rotten other sites like style project, um, maybe a couple of years later, Augerish and stuff like this. These were where you went to see just like, you know, you would just go through like tabs or genres almost of like, I want to see gore or I want to see autopsy photos. I want to see this or that. And it just became this kind of one-stop shop for this stuff that, broke beyond what you would think it originally would be made for, which far as Soylent told it was like a joke site. Yeah. You know, in the, or the days before the internet, you had to kind of go around and trade VHS tapes, mm-hmm. and like weird zines. This was a way that people were like sharing forbidden media, right? These things that yeah. you weren't supposed to see that no one wanted you to see. Um, and with these websites, with the internet, you had this boom of, just you could just pull them up on a website and just see all these horrible things that your parents definitely did not want you to see. I think that was a large part of the appeal, right? The interesting thing about Rotten, as far as I understood, a lot of at least that early content was Soylent was, I think, just like going to libraries and photo scanning, like, you know, autopsy and medical material that like was publicly available and that became a big part of rotten's argument when you know people tried to shut it down or talk about like this is the horrors that exist on the internet you'd be like this is just stuff you can get at your library which you know brings all the shock sites into like arguments of censorship and free speech and you know rotten quickly turned as soylent seemed to see it from a joke site into like this bastion of free speech on the internet um but like there was an interesting case there made that's like, I'm not presenting anything that wasn't already available to you. I'm just putting it in mass in one spot on the web. Right. It's not as if he was Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler setting up the accidents to take photos of them, right? <laughs> yeah. This was stuff that existed and was usually media that was pre-internet or was done for other purposes and then re-uploaded to the site. He yeah, just, he just that- ag- he, He's an aggregator, essentially. Ex- Exactly. And that actually became a defining trait of the shock site was kind of stealing content from its original home. Like, especially when we start talking about fetish content, you can assume, you know, something like Goatsy or Tub Girl was created for a specific audience that was somehow found by someone it was not meant for and then put in front of these audiences that were not enjoying it or appreciating it or consuming it for the reason it was made. And you start to see that at Rotten, where it's like, you know, these, a lot of this might just be coming out of textbooks, but now it's put in front of, you know, high school kids who just want to get a rise out of like blood and guts. And like that just becomes like stolen content becomes a huge defining trait of shock sites in general. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Welcome back, cyber listeners. We're talking about shock sites, shock sites. A little bit harder to say than I initially thought. And how they shaped the internet. Uh, I think like each generation is kind of defined by the specific shock thing they saw. Like I think the maybe uh, you tell me if uh, I, I'm wrong, but like I would imagine like two girls, one cup is yours. Definitely. Yeah. For my generation, that one for sure. And maybe tub girl, but even that predates me a little bit. Uh, I think of Goatsy. Goatsy was the one yeah. that like everyone was trying to trick everyone else to seeing. I have a friend where he will to this day send me an image uh, that is not Goatsy, but it'll just be like a ring with some hands. And, like that's all I need. And he's put it in my brain. That's all I have to see. And I know instantly what he's trying to do. People do the exact same thing to me. We we both exist in the same hell people have created for us. <laughs> so what was uh, the the Goatsy is kind of like a great example of what you're talking about with like fetish content being appropriated mm. and turned into shock content. So what yeah. what was Goatsy um, and how did it proliferate? So Goatsy is an image of a man who is bent over spreading his asshole um i don't know the exact size i've i've seen size comparisons to a grapefruit i guess i'll just use that for a brevity's sake but point being far wider than you think it should go it's a it's a, a shocking image to say the least to see the the human body capable of that and um a lot of what we know about the specifics of the proliferation comes from a gawker piece from i have it pulled up here 2012 by adrian chin which, as we were saying earlier, this, the, the image seemed to originate either on like um, gay forums or chat boards, maybe FTP sites, you know, like places for the specific audience of this kink or fetish. And at some point, a hacker group called the Hicks Crew got a hold of it. Um, it I'm not entirely sure how. Maybe they just like surfed that stuff and found it, stole it. But that's where the proliferation began. They would use it to troll at one point, I think, like Christian chat forums. They would like spam it in there to make everyone leave. And then they would take over the forum. Um, you know, kind of rickrolling is a good analogy. Um, but at one point, like to make this thing just easy to share, one of them, I believe their username was Merlin with a uh, one instead of an I. They uploaded it to a web page, goatsy.cx, which is what everyone, you know. I've, I've, most people have, when they think of Goatsy, they think of this. And that became the easily shareable link that spread it around because you send someone a link named Goatsy. It's not immediately, you, you don't look at the word Goatsy and if you don't know what it is, think about what it, that image is going to show you. So you click an innocuous link and you are confronted by um, something you most likely have never seen before and ostensibly are horrified by. And it just, like rotten, I guess took on a life of its own. I mean, Goatsy has is one of those rare shock sites that has kind of trickled its way into the mainstream, or at least the collective conscience of people to just know what it is. And it's like, again, like rotten, one of those like focal points for shock content to really start to spread on the internet and like catch people off guard and be seen just in mass. I think it was also for me the first time I'd seen like link shorteners or link obscurers. Oh, sure. Interesting. Like, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, uh, a friend would send an article, like be like this long URL. It's like, Oh, Hey, you know, check out this thing. I read this. It made me think of you. Um, mm -hmm. 
And you, you know, in your innocent days, you wouldn't think to hover and see what the actual URL was. You'd click it, boom, there it is, staring at you in the face. It's 9 a.m. You're not prepared for it. Ah, oh. uh, <laughs> you like toss it aside, right? Um, and I think like it's it's there's something about with Goatsy specifically tricking people into seeing it against their will uh, that became to define at least my <laughs> relationship to that image. Um, it's just like adolescence and well into our twenties. Just torturing each other. Um, and Well, I think to your point, it's also where you start to see kind of this like cornerstone of the Internet, which like not always to this extreme degree, but like getting a rise out of people. You know, like when I think about the idea of just publishing an article on shock sites, it's like, yeah, I'm interested in it. Yeah, I think this history is worth covering. It's also kind of an idea of like, I want to publish an article that catches people off guard. And like, that's a lot different than sending someone an image of so an asshole spread that far, but like it is kind of this early point of like people using the internet to elicit shock or strong emotions out of people, which has just become like kind of what the internet is used for in a lot of cases, even like to mundane degrees, you know, like you, you click on a lot of YouTube shorts cause they just catch your eye. It's like, Oh, that's weird. That's unexpected. Goatsy was an early form of that just in a horrific form. Yeah, we like feeling bad in a controlled environment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and like there's a there's a decent amount of the of your article that is kind of about this phenomenon. I would say it's also something that's at the root of horror uh, mm-hmm. in general. Like you want the excitement of these horrifying things with the guardrails on, where there's somewhere in the back of your mind that you know you're going to be safe, right? Right. Yeah. I so I I interviewed Nina Strominger. Um, who is a professor at uh, Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business and has done a lot of writing on the idea of disgust and specifically why humans are into it. And as far as I understand, you know, as Nina told me, and I haven't seen any other writing out there that, you know, exclude like specifically says this is the reason we love disgust, but there are a bunch of ideas about it. And what she told me and what some other writing seems to detail is that like, that safety barrier lets us understand there's no risk to us because like, as I wrote in the piece, if you were in the room with say tub girl, which someone was to take that image, but like a normal person, that's, that's reductive to say, but like most people, if they were in that room, the brain would tell you there might be some pathogen risk here because of how much excrement is just in a like very tight vicinity to you but if you look at it it's gross it will make you feel bad but you will understand there's no risk to you and so i think like the brain just always kind of wants to feel these sensations but know that like i'm not going to be hurt or i'm not going to be sick by it's why we watch jackass to a lesser degree it's why we watch sad movies or scary movies like you said you know um, shock sites are just a really extreme form of that, of wanting to know what exists out there in the world, what terrible, gross, awful things are out there, and what can I see without actually putting myself at risk of being hurt or being maimed, dead, or just like in a gross situation physically. Why do you think Two Girls, One Cup became... So mainstream. Uh, can you and can you describe? Because um, I, I like I grew up with Goat C, but I also recognize that that thing was 
everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can you, for people that may not know, tell us like some of the weird places that it ended up? Two girls, one cup. Yeah. The weirdest one seems to be like John Mayer and Sherrod Small's obsession with it. Like they parodied it for, I think, college humor or something. And then I have this memory of them singing about it on Best Week Ever on VH1. If you remember that show. Um, I, I remember find- I remember that show, but I don't remember them singing about it. But it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there was a yeah. family guy thing about it. Like Esquire showed it to George Clooney in one of their big profiles of him. I mean, the list goes on. Amy Schumer was like making jokes about it on her show, like in 2013 or something. Like it, it's kind of showed up everywhere. It's what everyone knows as to why it like got so big. I mean, I think there was already a precedent set by Goatsy, Tub Girl, Rotten, that like these things can reach mainstream appeal, but that was still in a fairly nascent era of the internet. By the time Tub Girl comes out, like it might just be that the internet was in a bigger place to kind of exacerbate like the popularity of these things and blow it way out of proportion, not out of proportion, but like blow it up in a way that others couldn't quite hit as the internet was like kind of just at that point an accepted part of most people's lives. That could have led to it. I don't know if there's like a conclusive point you can say this is why this was the one. Rather, there were probably just a lot of factors going on in the world and in the internet and just like right place, right time. John Mayer saw it. Maybe that was it. He's a big celebrity at that point. But like for whatever reason, it did break through in a way that like no other did and probably no other will. Oh, never say never. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's one of those interesting things where it's like the end of the article argues that it's like shock is bigger than ever, even if you don't always see it. But it's not like this video or that picture. It's just the accepted form of shock is now everywhere. Yeah, I want to talk about this because I was because I didn't know anything about this, this part. And it's super fascinating Mm. to me that um We've come so far from the days where Rotten.com is arguing that all they're doing is publicizing like publicly available information as an yeah. aggregator website, and they're making these free speech arguments. Um, I, I feels like to me that we are living through the same thing that happened to music and cable TV and all these other forms of communication that 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 hap- that, that were around before the internet. Um, I hesitate to call it censorship because I feel like there's like a state level thing going on there with, with when you use that word, but there's like a sanitization and a corporatization of the internet that is occurring right now. Mm. Um, where like, you know, you, YouTube changes its policy where if you, you utter a curse word in the first 30 seconds, um, it affects your monetization. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not because people top down don't want you to, don't want people to hear these words. It's because they have sponsors that perhaps uh, are uncomfortable with this kind of content. Right. And Mm -hmm. you're in um, yet. And yet on these platforms, the shock stuff still persists, but in a very interesting way. Can you explain how that works now? Yeah. I mean, first thing I, I, I think worth pointing out is like, when we talk about the way shock persists on YouTube or TikTok, it's not to say the shock sites are gone by any means. Like the one site I write about um, is eFucked, which I, I think they argue is not a shock site. I, I disagree. Um, you can say that I think they see it as like a porn humor website and 
when you're most famous for putting up a, a shock video of one guy, one jar, you're just a shock site to me. But like they bring in millions and millions of views. Like I, I spent the time counting up 25, their homepages view count. And it was like 24 million on just like the first videos uploaded in the last month or something. So it's like shock sites are still out there. They're still very big. But what we've seen and like what I detail a lot in the piece is there is kind of this new batch of people on platforms where you can't show shock sites simply describing shock sites or describing shock content which in and of itself is kind of comparable to like watching reaction videos back in the day like safely consuming content without seeing it yourself um that's what i you know talked about doing in high school having my friends describe it to me so there are like youtubers like um wang who has over a million subscribers and a big portion of his stuff outside of describing like gross Reddit threads is being like, hey, here's here's who Goatsy was. Here's, you know, the story behind um, Shocksite X, Shocksite Y, whatever. So th- there's a lot of these people who have kind of filled this role of telling people that are curious about shock sites or shock site history what it is without actually showing it itself. And there's um, this goes beyond to gore tube which i know motherboard has written before in the past and i touch on a little bit um like plagued moth um is a huge one in this space um and their thing is they have a patreon which i'll get to in a second because i think that's important and how this stuff can exist for these people and become their like livings um but they they will as far as i understand it post the uncensored content on youtube or on patreon but then on youtube they show it blurred, but with the sound still there, which somehow makes it almost worse. Um, it was well, really you, your brain fills in, right? What, yeah, and it's I, like the tub girl thing earlier you were talking about. Your brain does weird things to your memory, um, yeah. and if you're hearing the sounds and the image is only implied, it's often worse. Exactly, but like the point in bringing these people up is like they get views, you know. These people, these are people making their living doing this stuff. And that's probably because they have Patreon, you know, because maybe they're running some, I, I think Wang does do a lot of like, uh, ad reads on his videos. I don't think Plague Moth does at all because their stuff is extreme, um, extreme in the confines of YouTube. But, you know, they'll have like Patreons where people can sign up and see uncensored stuff, see bonus content the same way, you know, your your favorite podcast does. And that's how like people have found ways to make livings off of this stuff, off sharing this stuff and like furthering it. Because you have to imagine some amount of the audience on YouTube is then going to seek it out and see it for themselves. Curiosity kills the cat. But um, it's it's just that became the most fascinating part of the story for me is seeing where this stuff is popping up on YouTube and like, you know, true crime on YouTube. There's like kind of just the normal true crime genre. And then there are YouTube channels that will describe crimes in like, in all their gory details, like just, they will tell you exactly how someone was tortured, exactly how someone was murdered. Obviously they're showing this stuff, but like, Sometimes a crime is horrific enough that it's just as disturbing hearing about it as it is seeing it, you know? So that, to me, is another form of shock content. Uh, Extreme films have had this explosion on YouTube recently. Now you have all these channels reacting to, describing, like, fetish films. 
um, extreme horror, splatter, you know, all this stuff that was very underground in tape traded communities or, you know, like sold by very small boutique DVD companies. You have this exploding on YouTube where it's become like not mainstream, but it's become this kind of huge scene in the horror community. And all this stuff feels directly comparable to shock to me and the way people are consuming it and a lot of the content. You might not just look at it like it might not immediately appear like this is a goatsy or this is a tub girl, but it is existing in similar spaces and creating its own little shock community around it. It's funny because I always you you always had a friend that was uh, a little grosser than you, right? Yeah, and who had I think always I was that person for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, so you would have. I assume I'm going to say like you would probably have someone come up to you and say like, "Have you heard of have you heard of this lemon party thing? Yeah, what's going on with yeah. that?" And you'd start mm-hmm. to describe, and they go, "Okay, that's fine. I'm I'm all right." Uh, you know, or or whatever it was, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And so you, you've got now the, the monetized version of that on YouTube and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Or TikTok, where one of the weirder like, things I found was TikTok. I don't know how Tub Girl got discovered by uh, you know, teenagers on TikTok. That was so strange but, to me. Yeah. Yeah. If you go by the Google Trends data of searches for Tub Girl, it is bigger now than it has ever been by like an astronomical margin. And a lot of that is just there's a trend on TikTok of don't Google these things. Tub Girl got brought into that. And so it's like shock content is still out there. It's still persisting in all these places. And it's like we might not talk about two girls, one cup or a video like that anymore. There might not be a new one video, but somehow all this stuff is finding new homes on the Internet or finding new ways to influence the Internet. I mean, the one thing we haven't really talked about is the reaction video, which is yeah. just like... Yeah, yeah, because it uh, comes from Two Girls, One Cup, really, right? So for, like, it not it doesn't start with Two Girls, One Cup. Like, you could look at, like, Japanese variety TV, and they have, you know, the reactors there. Or, like, you remember the, that video of the maze, and then Linda Blair's face will pop up? There were reaction videos of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the point where it, like, kicks off is, yeah, Two Girls, One Cup. And now that's become... I don't know if industry is the right word for it, but like a cornerstone of the internet at this point is the reaction genre, you know, like watch Blink-182 react to Gen Z react to Blink-182 music videos. You know, there's so much of this stuff, but I work for Game Informer. We do reaction videos and it's always funny to think, oh yeah, this kind of has its genesis in scat porn. It's always (laughs) a weird thing to like keep in the back of your mind. It's like, I'm reacting to a new I don't know, call a duty trailer because some guy in his dorm made his friends watch girls eating poop. It's, it's a weird thing to think about, but like it speaks to the, I I'd say undeniable influence of shock sites on the internet. Yeah. It's fascinating to see how these kind of extreme edge cases from the nineties and the, in the early aughts end up becoming like the the they're prescient in a way like mm-hmm. a lot of places are are using rotten.com and similar arguments to kind of fight against internet censorship now right um uh what do you think is the future of the shock site and shock oh content? my god oh my god embarrassingly I, I i this might be the one thing i didn't think about <laughs> you know because like so 
To get into the weird history of this story for a moment, this was a story I worked on in 2019 that for, for Motherboard. And, you know, for reasons, I, I, I don't know if I'm super allowed, I'm allowed to talk about, not for any bad reasons, but the story was like killed. It was abandoned. Motherboard had their reasons, and I totally understood. It was out of my control. There were just other stories going on at Motherboard that were like, this is not the right time to run the shock site piece. Um, and it was in 2023, or t- late 2022, when I started thinking more about the YouTube stuff that I revisited it and, you know, talked to Emmanuel at Motherboard about, like, the idea of re- rewriting a lot of this and bringing it back. And I think I was so shocked, I guess pun intended, by, like, the YouTube stuff and the extreme cinema space and all this stuff going on. I don't know if I've thought much beyond it yet. Like, I think right now we're, uh, we put the piece out at this explosion of shot content. It's like, where is this going to settle? Like, just because extreme cinema is really big right now, and it's kind of filling these, these you know, same niches as shock content back in the day, because it's worth pointing out, like, a lot of extreme cinema, or at least, like, things kind of adopted by the extreme cinema community, is similar to shock content in that sometimes it's just fetish films, you know? Like, that they've just kind of, there's a lot of, like, gory films, and then it's like, oh, there's also this, like, Japanese fetish film, and that exists in the same space. So it's like, that's kind of filling a similar role as shock content. Anyway, where's all that going to settle? Is the extreme underground for cinema going to maintain this big? Is Tub Girl, is TikTok going to find a new shock video? I don't know. I don't know what the future of it is. Like, it feels like reaction videos will always be a thing. It feels like there will always be people using the internet to seek out gross things. There's so many Reddit subreddits you can join. Like, iBleach, I think, is one of them, or 5050. Where it's like you can see shot content. Does it just persist like this forever? Do we see a new Goatsy? Do we see a new Tub Girl? Or like, do the mundane ways we use the internet, does shot content find a new way to kind of influence it, like the way the reaction video did? I, I, I hate to say I don't really have an answer for it because I think right now it's like we're in a new era for shot content, even if it's like we're consuming. Even if it just means the way we're using the internet is influenced by shock content, not necessarily viewing it, you know? So it's like, where does that settle? Where does that go from here? It's hard to say because, you know, when I think the YouTube user Fartnew uploaded the two girls, one cup reaction videos that blew this thing up. I can't imagine that guy thought, you know, one day people are going to make their livings off <laughs> like filming old people react to Slipknot music videos. <laughs> You know, so it's like, who am I to say in 2023 where this is going to be 20 years from now? Because I think we're in such a surprising place in terms of like the influence of gross shit on the internet. I think the only thing we can be certain of is that in 20 years, uh, Cannibal Holocaust will still be shocking. Probably. And you'll be able to buy it in like 16K, you know. <laughs> but here's something I was thinking about the other day. It's like, there's this argument that shock content like it takes more to shock people these days. And I think that's one argument as to why we don't have like a similar tub girl or goatsy or two girls, one cup, like, you know, like at this point I can watch two girls, one cup and not be phased by it. But also I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) I couldn't, I think, I think that one honestly is not as bad as others. Like goatsy. I hope I live the rest of my life without seeing, but for some reason too, well, I think what it is is like, I went and saw Jackass four in a like, movie theater 
with reclining seats in a shopping mall in suburban Minnesota last year or whatever. Yeah, and there was and that a movie's extreme. In a, you know, it was, like, it was fascinating to me too because there was so many. Because like uh, the the original run of that stuff when like Can't Kill Yourself was coming out, the CKY yeah. videos that kind of pre that that are precursors to Jackass, like the early Jackass days. There's like a moral panic about it. Yeah, um, and then Jackass Four hits, and Johnny Knoxville is an elder statesman, and there's <laughs> lots of. Um, stuff being written about how good Jackass was um, and it being positive masculinity and all these kind of like interesting things. And mm-hmm. it's funny to see stuff really come around, but it's also like Jackass four, I think is the grossest of those movies. Like the penis flattening thing. in that is 20 years ago. It would have been a shock site. You know what I'm saying? So it's <laughs> yeah. like, where does it go from here when I can go to an AMC movie theater in a mall and see stuff of that caliber on an IMAX? It's it's impossible to know at this point. Never discount uh, the power of reactionary forces in American life. <laughs> That's um, true. I think yeah. they will surprise you. Um, yeah. I think we're seeing it now play out. I mean, this is kind of tangential to this, but uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we we talk about Rotten.com going in and up and grabbing autopsy photos out of a library and uploading them on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this stuff is publicly available, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, if you live in Florida, are those books still going to be in the library? I guess that's a good point. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. One, one question I walked away from this and this kind of getting off your topic a little bit, but like, um, that's a funny pun. Two girls, one cup kind of started on the off topic forum. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, one, one huge question I was never able to answer with this was we talked about how this stuff was a lot of this stuff was stolen, you know, and like someone like, you know, the people in the Goatsy image or the tub girl image, or even the two girls, one cup, which that was filmed for like a sold porn film. But like, there is as no way any of those people thought what they made would be seen by that many people. And like, at this point, the article I want to write is finding tub girl or Goatsy and be like, how does that affect you? Yeah. You know, like, if you're in an image that you think at most might be, especially in the late mid to late nineties, a hundred people. And it becomes this, you know, cornerstone of the internet, like this, this huge meme on the internet seen by millions of people for decades now. Like, what do you think if you're that person, obviously you're probably not going to come out and, you know, talk about it or like make a YouTube channel dedicated to it. But it's like, who are these people? And like, how have they been affected over the years just by like knowing that, you know, some have the benefit of their face not being in it, but it's like, it still has to have some effect knowing that a, your content was stolen and used for purposes to horrify people, which may not feel good. That might be, you might be bummed about that. B it's like you accidentally had this massive impact on the internet and how people use the internet. Like that's the question that I hated leaving unanswered in this piece, but it's also hard to identify and track down a lot of these people and be like, if you could, I mean, how do you get them to agree to talk? Like, yeah. I don't even know how I would approach, like if I could figure out who tub girl is, how do I ask her if she's comfortable speaking with me? You know? So it's, that's like the question I want answered, but I don't know the like tasteful way to go about it. 
you know, to put someone on the spot like that. But it's weird. I don't know if there's a tasteful, I mean, the whole, that's the whole thing about all of this, this whole topic, right? Is it's all tasteless. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, if I was in that position and like something like that was stolen from me, I don't know if I'd want to talk about it. Like, you know, I don't know that I'd want to put myself out there and speak to a journalist about it. But I think that's like, I think it is something we look over in all this is, you know, this stuff was stolen and used for purposes that was not its intended purpose. Like a lot of this stuff was probably created thinking it would stay within a community and be safe there and shared with like-minded people. And it just wasn't. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. And I think like we do kind of forget that. And like, I equally as guilty of it, but also in my piece, like there was no answer for me to give, you know, and I just had to run the piece without it. Yeah. What happens when something very private becomes an object of mockery for the entire world. Yeah. And like something that extreme, right? Yeah. Because like, because people like just, I mean, maybe this starts with the shock side. I don't know, but like part of the internet now is just like finding weird YouTube videos and mocking people for looking dumb or goofy sometimes right. rightfully. So oftentimes not rightfully. So, you know, we just love to bully people, but it's like shock sites exist in an extreme realm just inherently and it's like when you're creating that kind of stuff it's like i the psychological effects would just i don't must be profound to think about all right sir thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through this where can people find your stuff um game informer (laughs) gotta go to gamestop i guess um i do a lot of like um i don't do a lot of like our reviews or cover stories i write a lot of like profiles and travel writing for us so um a lot of that's in the magazine and i'm on twitter at metallica's rad what are you what are you looking forward to this year in the gaming space what's your what's your what's the big game you want to play in 2023 oh resident evil 4 remake i'll be playing it in like a week i can't wait Uh, very soon i guess a couple more weeks but yeah just that one after that i've taking a video game sabbatical i assume it's a assume it's gonna peak with that one this year um resident evil 4 is my favorite game so good as it gets for me thank you so much for coming on thank you appreciate it when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.